0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline in today's message, you can go to the show notes or details page of your podcast platform. Today we're going to be concluding our Faith Is series with a look at how the faith is still applicable to our lives. Last week, we looked at how the faith is still absolute, and this week, we look at its application in our lives. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with his message called, The Faith is Still Applicable. The faith is still applicable today. I want to start out with a profound lesson from Dennis the Menace, the comic strip, okay? I know... If you're not in the front two rows or something, you're going to have trouble seeing that. But um, I decided to come up here where I can see it. But anyway, you can get to gist as I, as I started out. Dennis and his four, three friends are out in the yard one day looking up in the sky in the first frame. And one of the girls says, here he comes again. Uh, who? The sky rider. The guy in the airplane is riding on the sky. Don't he have a pencil and paper? He's advertising something, Margaret says. Probably bird food, says Dennis. What does it say? Margaret reads it carefully. Drink mom's root beer. Really? Oh, boy. Come on, what are we waiting for, Dennis says. They run into the house. Dennis, what are you doing? You saw what was written in the sky, and here's the line. I love this. Dennis answers, when you get a message right from heaven, you can't ignore it. When you get a message from heaven, you can't ignore it. Dennis is absolutely right. We should not ignore the message God has given us from heaven. But many people do. And many others confuse the message from heaven. You've probably seen some of those versions. I've shared different variations of of them, of the accounts where they've taken things that kids have actually said in Sunday school classes where they've confused the Bible stories. And someone wrote this one into a story, okay? And I'm, I'm gonna, I've left some sections out for time's sake. But listen to the kids explain the story of the Bible. In the beginning, which occurred near the start, there was nothing but God, darkness, and some gas. There's some confusion there. The Bible says, the Lord thy God is one, but I think he must be a lot older than that. Anyway, God said, give me a light, and someone did. <laughs> then God made the world. He split the Adam and made Eve. Adam and Eve were naked, but they weren't embarrassed because mirrors hadn't been invented yet. Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating one bad apple, so they were driven from the Garden of Eden. Not sure what they were driven in, though, because they didn't have cars. Adam and Eve had a son, Cain, who hated his brother as long as he was able On down it says, later came Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was more famous than his brother Esau because Esau sold Jacob his birthmark in exchange for some pot roast. Jacob had a son named Joseph who wore a really loud sports coat. Well, later on it says came David. He got to be king by killing a giant with a slingshot. He had a son named Solomon who had about 300 wives and 500 porcupines. My teacher says he was wise, but that doesn't sound very wise to me. After Solomon, there were a bunch of major league prophets. One of these was Jonah, who was swallowed by a big whale and then barfed up on the shore. There were also some minor league prophets, but I guess we don't have to worry about them. After the Old Testament came the New Testament. Jesus is the star of the new. He was born in Bethlehem in a barn. And in parenthesis, the kid says, I wish I'd been born in a barn too because my mom is always saying to me, close the door, were you born in a barn? It would be nice to say, as a matter of fact, I was. (laughs) During his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like the Pharisees and the Democrats and Republicans. (laughs) Jesus also had 12 opossums. The worst one was Judas' asparagus. Judas was so evil that they named a terrible vegetable after him. (laughs) Jesus was a great man. He healed many leopards and even preached to some Germans on the Mount. (laughs) You know, when kids confuse the Bible's message innocently, it's cute. When adults confuse the Bible's message out of carelessness or ignorance, it's tragic because the Bible is our guide for life, and it has an unchanging message. As I said last week, this phrase, the faith, the way we're using that is as it's used in in, uh, Jude verse 3. And the faith is actually referring to, that phrase, the faith, not talking about the faith we have in God, but the faith is referring to the gospel message, to Christian doctrine, Christian beliefs, the message of salvation, the inspired scriptures. Those kind of are used interchangeably when we talk about the faith. 2 Timothy 3, and sorry, I meant to tell you to turn there before I got up here, or as I got up here. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 through 17. I'm just going to read it. I want it to speak for itself. We're not going to come back to it but I want you to notice what it says about the Word of God. Paul's writing to Timothy, a young preacher, talking about Timothy's heritage, having heard the Bible all his life. Verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's verse I really want us to notice. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, we have come to know and understand the faith because of the inspired Word of God, and the faith has been making people wise for salvation for 2,000 years because it is just as applicable today as when it was first given all those centuries ago. And here's why the faith is just as applicable as it was 2,000 years ago. Number one, the faith was given by an unchanging God The faith was given by an unchanging God. I love the fact that the Bible begins with an unequivocal declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God's eternal lordship is reaffirmed throughout the rest of the Bible. Matter of fact, near the middle of the Bible, in Psalm 90, we are reminded that from everlasting to everlasting, He is God. And the last book of the Bible gives repeated glimpses of God reigning eternally on his throne, joined by the Lamb, and minus the evil one who had introduced falsehood into the world. Like we said last week, Satan wasn't in the first two chapters of the Bible, and he's not in the last two chapters either. And that's significant. I love how God identified himself to the fearful and doubtful Moses. And then we'll talk about another phrase too. Here's what... God said, when Moses says, okay, when I go tell these people about you, who should I say sent me? And God's answer was, I am that I am, Moses. You tell them I am sent you. I want you to think about what God's saying when he calls himself I am. He is saying, I am self-existent. I am self-contained. I am self-powered. I am self-perpetuated. Jesus would later say in John 5 that God has life in himself. He is timeless, he is ageless, he is changeless, he is all sufficient. God is always. He is the active, unchanging, eternal, absolute God. God simply is, or literally the Hebrew could be could say he be. God just be. He is. He says I am. You see that's a God we can trust. When life's changes come too fast on us, and when uncertainty seems to be the order of the day, it's nice to know we worship a God who is I Am. But there's another way God describes Himself, and that's as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's interesting that over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God repeatedly used that phrase, even after those three men were dead and gone from this life, he still said in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And today, in 2021, God remains the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which means he's also the God of Peter and James and John. And it also means he's the God of Irenaeus and Augustine and Martin Luther, And it also means he's the God of Bethlehem preachers down through the ages like James Walters and Jim Smith and Christian Martin. God just is. He be. He be. He is the friend of Abraham who still wants to be a friend to you. He is faithful. He keeps his promises and he upholds the faith once for all. So the faith is just as applicable as it ever was because we have an unchanging God. But secondly, the faith is applicable today because the faith responds to an unchanging problem. And that unchanging problem throughout the ages has been sin. You see, God created us in His own image, Genesis 1 tells us, and Genesis 5 and lots of other places. He created us in His image as spiritual beings for the very purpose of you and me having a close personal relationship with Him. That's why we're made in His image. But unfortunately, Satan understood that God made us in His image to have a relationship with us. And Satan understood something else. Satan understood that he could never defeat God. Now follow me here. Satan knew we we're made in his image to have a relationship with God. Satan knew he could never defeat God. So Satan decided to go after the people who are made in God's image because he knew his only method of hurting God was to hurt the people God loves so much. Satan knew if he could mess your life up and mess my life up, it would break the heart of God. Satan also understood something else very important that all he had to do was to get you or me or Adam or Eve or anybody else to sin one time, one time, and then our sin would become a barrier between us and God. And it would be a chasm that we would not be able to cross on our own. Satan understood that. And that's exactly what happened. The enemy got Adam and Eve to question what God had said. Remember that. He convinced them that they'd be happier if they did things their way rather than God's way. They bought the lie, they disobeyed God, and with that single act of rebellion, the devil began a destructive ball rolling that is still crushing lives today and this week. The whole human race, including you and me, followed the example of Adam and Eve into sin, and many tragic things have resulted. There's now guilt because of sin. There's emptiness, there's pain, there's greed, there's false teaching, there's gossip, there's d- there's alcoholism, there's abortion, there's suicide, there's adultery, there's oppression, there's disease, and just as God had told them, there is now death because of human sin. We saw in la- last week in Romans 5 verse 12 the connection between Adam and Jesus. It's inseparable. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death comes to all men because all sin. Because God had said in Genesis 2 that the wages of sin is death. And he repeats it in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Friends, we had a big, big problem once we became sinners. And it's an unchanging problem. But the faith is still applicable today because the faith offers an unchanging solution to that problem. In Genesis 3, and I want you to turn over there, Genesis 3, because I want to look at three quick passages there. In Genesis 3, God did three things to immediately begin to offer a solution to us doomed sinners. Okay, beginning of chapter 3, mankind sins, and there's the problem. Hell is now the destiny of all human beings. All human beings. But God did three things here. The first thing is in verses 8 and 9. They have sinned and they're hiding from God for the first time in their existence. They've never done that before. But notice who comes looking. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Don't miss that. Where are you? Notice who came looking for who. God came looking for the human beings who had failed him and disappointed him and rebelled against him and showed, in a sense, a lack of trust and hatred toward him. And God says, I want you back. I want you back. Folks, therein lies the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion, as we'll see next week, that's going to be the biggest part of the message next week. Religion is human beings trying somehow to seek and and find God somewhere out there. Christianity is totally different. Christianity is God came looking for us. And he's never given up that pursuit. Never. Never. That's the first thing we see God doing. Verse 21, we see God take another step to deal with our sin problem. Verse 21, I bet you've read over this and over this and over this and never saw this significance. Verse 21, chapter 3 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. One of the most important verses in the first part of the Bible. Where did God get a garment of skin? Did he run down to Walmart or pennies? No. God got a garment of skin by killing an animal. And I personally believe, I cannot prove this, I'll never be able to prove this, I am going to ask in heaven someday. (laughs) I personally believe it was a lamb that God killed. Because then that would fit with everything else all through the rest of the scripture, the lamb dying for the sins. I think it was a lamb that God killed, and I personally also like to believe that he made Adam and Eve watch and said, this is what your sin did. I want you to watch this. As I kill this animal, I want you to see what sin causes. But even in that violent act was a message of hope. Because what God was saying to Adam and Eve, even in his absolute disappointment and disgust at their sin and what it caused, death was now part of of this world after that. God was also saying, Adam and Eve, I'm going to accept a substitute to die in your place. In other words, it was the first image of grace. Someone dying on behalf of someone else who didn't deserve it. The third thing we see in Genesis 3 that God did to fix our problem, we saw last week, verse 15. What I argue is the second most important verse in the Bible after Genesis 1-1, where God tells Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, this descendant of Eve, will crush your head, Satan, (laughs) and you will strike his heel. That is a first look in the Bible at the one Jesus who would later die as an atoning sacrifice for all people. God would send someone in the human family to fight and destroy Satan, dying in the process to pay the penalty for our sin. And the rest of the Bible, like I said last week, records how God carried out the promise he made in that one verse. Everything that follows in the Bible is the fulfillment of that verse. You see, the faith remains applicable because it offers an unchanging solution. And it's the one solution to our one real problem of sin in our life. That brings us to the fourth reason the faith is still applicable today. The faith is communicated through an unchanging message. See, what follows Genesis 3.15 is not a bunch of random stories about a bunch of random people. It's all a single story from Genesis 3 on. It's the glorious story of a loving God restoring fallen people back to himself. It's the story of redemption and restoration. It's the story of a savior and salvation. It's the story of God preparing the world for the Messiah to come by selecting a specific nation for a special role in that preparation, the nation of Israel. It's the story of laws and commands and animal sacrifices that pointed to the Messiah, the Christ. It's the story of fulfilled prophecies. It's ultimately a story of hope. It's the story of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the conqueror of Satan. That's what the Bible's all about. I love how more than 100 years ago, a guy in the restoration movement named Z.T. Sweeney divided up the Bible this way. He said it's all about Christ, (laughs) the entire Bible. He said the Old Testament's basically the message is we're coming up to Christ. Let's get ready for him. The Messiah's coming. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The coming of Christ. The book of Acts. Here's how you come into Christ and become a Christian, a follower of his. The epistles, the letters were telling us how to continue faithfully as followers of Christ. And then finally, the revelation, the last book of the Bible about being crowned with Christ. It's all about Jesus, it's one story. You see, the faith offers living words that are always relevant. This one grand story was written originally for Jews and Romans and Greeks. It was written for rural people and city people. It was written for Christians and non-Christians. It was written for kings and it was written for peasants. It was written over a 1500 year period by approximately 40 different men from diverse walks of life, yet it offers one consistent message of redemption. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, the early church proclaimed this message on three different continents. The Bible helped spur the Renaissance, bringing the world out of the Dark Ages. Parts of the Bible have been translated into more than 2,500 languages and it's changing lives in every one of those cultures. So you see the story of a Jewish itinerant preacher being nailed to a Roman cross outside an ancient city in Israel has touched the hearts of people all over the world because they understand that it was not an unfortunate martyrdom but the self-sacrifice of a willing Savior carrying out the eternal plan of God the Father. And then Jesus sealed the victory by rising from the grave to conquer Satan and death once for all. It's a story of victory. So folks, listen to this. Whether the enemy, you see this all through the Bible, whether the enemy is a pagan Pharaoh or a Philistine giant or a Babylonian army or a baby-killing Idumean king named Herod, or whether the enemy is Nazism, or radical Islam, or communism, or secular humanism. Whatever the enemy is, God has the victory. The faith offers victory through Jesus Christ, no matter who or what the enemy is. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Because it's the story. And you should stick to it too, because that unchanging message is still true, And therefore, the faith is just as applicable today as when it was first handed down 2,000 years ago. Here's a fifth reason the faith is still applicable today. The faith explains an unchanging response. In other words, our response to God's message and His offer to us. That doesn't change the way God says we should respond to His grace and salvation. Let's review. As sinners, we have a problem. I got a problem, you got a problem. But the faith offers an unchanging solution that we just saw through grace. And then it describes our necessary response to God's offer. Now here's where it's going to get tricky because remember the title is The Faith. We're talking about the body of Christian belief that we accept, the faith. But our response to this message, this offer of god is centered in faith and by that i mean the act of believing the act of faith in other words our intellectual belief and then our unwavering trust that follows all right now i want you to think back to satan's first step toward leading eve to sin remember in the garden he first thing he did was he got eve to doubt god's word first thing he did first words of satan recorded in scripture are did god really say you would die See, he planted a doubt in Eve's mind that, well, maybe God, maybe God didn't mean that. Maybe God didn't say that. Maybe I heard God wrong. He got her to doubt what God had said. And once her faith wavered, she was easy prey. And then he simply led her away from God. And Satan still uses that today. Oh, you can't believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's all allegory. You know, oh, you can't believe this or that. So, folks, it's not an accident that our first step back toward restoration is to believe God again, faith, to trust His Word and to trust Him. That's the beginning of our response to God. In other words, a full belief in Jesus and the power of His saving actions. But that faith then, in turn, leads to other things. And this is how we respond to God to obtain salvation. First of all, our faith leads us to confession. That's where we express our faith. With our mouth, we say what's in our heart and in our mind. See, confession is important because no one can know what's in my heart or mind. God can, but no other human being can. All right. Our faith also leads to something else, if it's really there, our faith in Jesus. It leads to repentance. Repentance is a faith-prompted change of heart and priorities to live totally for God. In other words, I'm going to do it God's way from now on. I'm not the boss anymore. He is. He's Lord my life. Faith also leads to something else that's an extremely important part of our response to His grace, and that is baptism. Baptism is a faith-prompted burial underwater to begin a new life in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice, Jesus Himself ordained That at that life changing moment of submission to God, it would offer a vivid, unmistakable symbolism that would be applicable in every culture. So, God asked us to do something that tells a story in itself. See, the human race has always understood the concept of a death and burial since the fall of man. So, God wanted to use something, which He chose baptism as a picture that could not be misunderstood that would in the process proclaim two different deaths. Baptism explains two different deaths, symbolizes two different deaths. Number one, the death of Jesus and his burial and his resurrection. And secondly, the death of a sinner dying to an old life and rising again. See what God was doing. Having us do something, an act of submission, a passive act of submission done to us, that would illustrate Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and our death, burial, and resurrection to a new life. Let me give you a warning. No one has more reason to cheapen or redefine or lessen the vital role of baptism in the salvation process than Satan does because his entire mission is to keep us from God. So who else would want to confuse the understanding of biblical baptism more than Satan. Well, he has and he has succeeded. By the way, have you ever wondered why there has been so much confusion over hundreds of years, confusion and controversy about baptism and the Lord's Supper through the ages? Have you ever wondered why those two things are what people get confused in the religious world? It's very easy why that happens. Because both baptism and the Lord's Supper honor and celebrate the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and Satan hates the blood. So anything Satan can can do in the religious world and in the evangelical world to confuse our understanding of the purpose and the beauty of baptism or the Lord's Supper, Satan's going to do it. Satan's going to confuse people because those two things... Point to the blood of Jesus more than anything else in the Christian faith. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They proclaim the saving grace of God. There is power in the blood. It is the blood that saves us. And our blood-centered faith is just as applicable as the day it was handed down. Don't let Satan deceive you about baptism or the Lord's Supper. They are vital because they talk about the blood. Here's the sixth thing. The faith is perpetuated through an unchanging mission. God's plan to redeem us did not begin in Genesis 3 when two naked sinners scrambled for cover in the garden. <laughs> that was not when God says, Oh no, now I've got to come up with another plan. <laughs> no, God had foreseen what they would do and what their need would be So he set in motion a plan of restoration, as Ephesians 1 1 says, before the creation of the world, because he knew we would sin. And see, that same mission that God had even before time continued when he killed the animal in Genesis 3. God was enacting the mission. And that same mission continued when he provided a ram to die instead of Abraham's son Isaac on Mount Moriah. That same mission continued when the Israelites were told to put blood over the doorposts in Egypt. That was God carrying out the mission. That same mission continued when Jesus, our Passover lamb, gave his own life not far from Mount Moriah. This stuff's all connected. That same mission continued when the early Christians swept across the Roman world with truth and love and the message of Jesus' resurrection That same mission continued as the faith was carried across Europe and then across the Atlantic Ocean and beyond. And now, guess what? That mission is in our hands. That mission is in our hands. We talk a lot about the church having a mission, but maybe I think it's more accurate for us to say that the mission has a church. You think about that. The Church of Jesus Christ is the vehicle God now uses to complete His mission. The mission has a church to carry out that mission. The mission is bigger than any particular church or any church leader or any of us. We are simply to be faithful as God's current messengers until we simply, uh, we someday, someday celebrate. The fulfillment of Revelation 7, 9, which says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. We better get busy if that's going to be true. The faith is just as applicable as when it was first handed down. And here's the final reason the faith is still applicable today. The faith culminates in the changing of lives. See, this is God's ultimate goal. The Bible is a dramatic saga of the lives changed by the power of God. A fearful, reluctant Moses became a national deliverer. God was terrified at first. A lustful adulterer like David became a man after God's own heart. Wow. A vicious persecutor like Saul became the persecuted missionary, Paul. The loudmouth, out out-of-control Simon became the preaching rock that Jesus nicknamed Peter. No wonder Paul wrote in Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It has power. No wonder Paul celebrated in Ephesians 2 that the enemies of God were being transformed into forgiven children of God. And no wonder Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through verses that are desperately needed to be heard in our culture today. He said, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then it starts listing sins. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty direct. But notice what verse 11 says. And that is what some of you were. They were some of those things. They were all of those things. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Paul saying this message, the faith, changes lives. The faith is still as applicable as the day it was handed down. Skeptics became believers. And some of those skeptics, even in not too long before our lifetime, had become some of the most powerful messengers, people like C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel. In the mid-1970s, I crossed communist borders more than 25 times. And I used to chuckle at the fact that sometimes at the the borders, those border guards would ask a question. They would say, do you have any guns, ammo, or holy books? And I used to think, that's an odd combination. (laughs) Guns and ammo and holy books, the Bible. The Bible. Well, I've concluded that those border guards, those communist border guards, may have had more confidence in the power of the Bible than a lot of Christians do. Because they were admitting, (laughs) by trying to stop Bibles coming in, they were admitting that God's Word had the power to undermine their entire atheistic communist system. And guess what? It did in the late 1980s. The Bible undermined communism and the foolish... (laughs) attempt that had been made for 70 years and guess what the bible's still doing the same thing which is why the secular humanists and anti-religious extremists are fighting so hard to keep biblical biblical principles out of american public life and out of american universities and more and more out of younger ages in our education system but as the apostle paul expressed from his prison cell in 2nd Timothy 2, verse 9, God's word is not chained. God's word is not chained. It is living and active and has always changed lives. Gary Zustiak in his book, Reasons to Believe, said this. He said, the fact is that wherever the Bible has gone, its effect upon the people who have received it has been to lift them to a higher plane. He said, it has influenced the founding of many universities and colleges Hospitals, orphanages, nursing homes, and other charitable organizations. On an individual basis, it has made better husbands and wives, better fathers and mothers, better employers and employees, and better neighbors and citizens. End of quote. That's what the Bible does. That's what the faith does. I like how our missionary Earl Hobner loves to say over and over and over again wherever Jesus goes, things get better. Wherever Jesus goes, things get better. Lives, families, and communities are changed by the transforming power of God. So my friends, the faith is just as applicable today as when it was first given to the human race 2,000 years ago. One of my favorite songs, in order they call song, chorus, hymn, or whatever, uh, doesn't really matter, It's called Ancient Words, one of my favorite songs ever. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Let's never stop reading and studying and teaching and living those words of life that we find in the Bible. We prepare to sing our song of decision this morning. There's a question at the bottom of your page, as usual. Will you let the faith change you and others around you? Think about that. Will you let the faith what I've just tried to describe, will you let the faith change you and others around you? It will, if we let it, and we'll never be the same, and we're going to have hope forever. So as we sing this song, it's all about giving us faith, and, and hopefully the words of God have given us faith. That's the, the effect Romans ten seventeen says of the word. It gives us faith. So what do you need to do about that faith this morning? Do you need to recommit yourself to this unchanging message and that unchanging God? Do you need to commit yourself to being a a better spokesman on behalf of that mission? Maybe you've been in this uh, church of Jesus Christ decades, and you're just not bringing other people in like is our mission. Maybe that's the commitment you need to make today. Let's look at our lives. Let's look at our heart. Let's look at our faith as we respond to the faith in whatever way God needs us to today. Maybe you need to come and reenact that gospel story like we said uh, this very day. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem. 505.org, or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.